following message was recorded at River City Church. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. A couple of years ago, a friend told me about a visit he had done to a church, and afterwards he was talking with the congregation when he was approached by a young girl of about four or five. She walked right up to him, and with great confidence, she said to him, Do you know who I am? And when he confessed that he didn't, she raised herself up to her full height and declared, I am the pastor's daughter. Well, do you remember a few weeks ago, we spoke about the amazing confidence with which Jesus lived and spoke. It appeared to anyone who met him that he wasn't striving to become someone. He was totally at rest about who he was. He wasn't looking to this world or anyone in it to tell him who he was. He wasn't trying to become someone, just living as someone totally at peace with who he was. In a world where everyone is trying to become someone, a person who is totally at rest about who they are really stands out. Even the temple guards who were sent to arrest Jesus, after hearing him speak, they recognized an authority in his life that they didn't feel able to challenge. Later, they tried to describe that experience of being overawed by the confidence, the authority of Jesus as he spoke. All they could say was, no one has ever spoken like this man. I think people found on hearing Jesus that the authority with which he was speaking and living ignited in them a hunger for that same experience, that same life, a life of confidence, of rest, because we were all made for such rest. I think it was St. Augustine who said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Hearing Jesus speak awoke people to how hungry and thirsty they were to know the Father, as Jesus knew him. As the two disciples on the road to Emmaus put it, did our hearts not burn as he spoke? The authority with which Jesus spoke of the Father was so unique that as he broke bread with those two disciples, it was the moment he began to speak to his Father that they recognized that this was Jesus, alive from the dead, for no one else ever spoke as this man spoke. But here's the wonderful thing. Anyone filled with God's Holy Spirit can speak like that, can speak in a way that awakens this world to a life of confidence and rest that they have never known, the life of Christ. Because the Holy Spirit still gives today that knowing of God, which is the source of true authority. I still remember the authority with which my wife Nicola spoke when she first began to speak to me of her experience with God's Spirit. You know, I'd gone to church for years, but I'd never heard anyone speak with such confidence about God before. I mean, I got so used to the idea that God was unknowable that to hear my wife speak as if she knew him almost sounded to me as blasphemous. Yet her confidence, the authority she spoke with, only ignited in me a thirst to know him as she did. You know, Jesus exuded that authority because as John 13 records, he knew where he had come from, he knew where he was going, and that he had a father who had held nothing back from him. Only someone who is utterly secure in their own identity 
can live unselfishly because they're not looking to anyone to affirm them or confirm them. It is our own insecurity that causes us to put pressure on people to be to us what we think they need to be to us. Many people tried with Jesus to make him what they wanted him to be. Some wanted him to be a political leader, others the leader of a revolution against the Romans. His mother just wanted him to come home and stay out of trouble. But no matter how hard people tried to make Jesus fit into their boxes, he just didn't fit, and he still doesn't. His life today still doesn't fit into any of the world's boxes, and that should be a characteristic of his body, the church. No one should be able to label Christ or his body with a worldly label, like a political label, for Christ and all those in him draw their identity from the Father. Now that doesn't mean that Christians shouldn't be involved in politics, as it is an important way to take responsibility for the needs of others, but it does mean that Christians shouldn't so draw their identity from their political beliefs that their hope slips off what Christ has done and moves on to what we could do if we had political power. If in order to get that power, you have to speak to an opponent in a way that leaves them condemned and rejected, then it's no longer the spirit that comes from God that's speaking through you, but rather the spirit of this world. Jesus said that we're not of this world, and in him we have in fact overcome this world. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, bad stuff, the troubles of this world, don't afflict us. I mean, just ask the Apostle Paul how his life went. But it does mean that nothing that happens to us in this world needs to define us or tell us who we are, for we are filled with the Spirit of him who is the first and the last word, the Alpha and the Omega, on who we are. Now ask yourself this morning, in all honesty, who is telling you who you are? From whom are you drawing your identity this morning? From the Spirit that comes from God or the Spirit of this world? Now if it helps, if you're feeling condemned this morning, then you have been listening to the Spirit of this world. For in this world you are continually measured, compared with others and found wanting. But the Spirit who comes from God is the one who sees you as unique and your worth as immeasurable. You may have doubts as to your worth. Your Father in heaven has none, and Christ in him crucified is both the appearing of his lack of doubt over your worth and the gift of his view and opinion of your worth, his doxa, his glory to you. I'll say that again. You may have doubts over your worth, but your Father in heaven has none, and Christ in him crucified is the appearing of his lack of doubt over you. You know, the world has underestimated your worth and mine to God so much that no wonder the Apostle Paul wrote, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has revealed him. You know, Jesus spoke and he lived with such authority because he knew the Father and who himself was in the Father's eyes. So Jesus didn't need to be born in a palace or wear the regalia of a king to tell himself he was a king. Can I say, if you're a Christian, a child of God's Spirit, a son of God, it's wonderful to be able to fellowship with God's people, to gather together, to encourage and minister to one another. But the fact that you go regularly to a church service should not be what convinces you or anyone else that you are a Christian. In fact, some of the strongest believers in the world live in countries today where they are prevented from attending public services. 
It is not doing the things that Christians do that makes you a Christian. Why not? Because Christians aren't self-made. They are born from above by the Spirit of God. You become a Christian by grace through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast about being a Christian. It's a work of the Holy Spirit to bring about that new birth, including that metanoia, that total change in thinking that leads to a change in actions that we call repentance. And it is the Holy Spirit who then continues to lead us into a greater and greater metanoia, a renewing of our minds to begin to think of ourselves as God thinks of us, and so begin to live as the people our Father always called us and saw us to be, free, secure, and confident children of his love. Do you know the wonderful thing is that Jesus himself so shared our humanity, so set aside his glory, that he too, as a man, had to grow in his revelation of the Father and who he was in the Father. Jesus himself grew in his knowledge of his identity from his earliest years. The Holy Spirit was filling him with the knowledge of God and the knowledge of who he was. Truly in Christ, God entered into our lives because he went through every stage of growth in life as we do. I believe the greatest, healthiest, most life-giving thoughts the human mind can think are those of how God has united himself with us through Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I'm going to share some more of these wonderful thoughts with you about how much God has entered into the life of man through Christ. This morning, the wonderful life-giving thoughts we're going to share are of how Jesus grew in the revelation of his true identity. For it is on such a journey that the Holy Spirit is leading us also. Now, in the second chapter of Luke's Gospel, God's Word twice recounts this growth in Jesus. Verse 40 declares of Jesus, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Verse 52 declares, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And between those two verses in Luke's Gospel, we have this tantalizing passage which uniquely recounts this growth of Jesus, the man, by describing an incident from his life when he was just 12 years old. Jesus, if you remember, had got up to Jerusalem with Mary and Joseph for the feast of Passover. And on the journey home, Luke records that Mary and Joseph assumed Jesus was with friends and relatives. And they assumed that for a whole day before they realized that he wasn't with them. And they turned back to Jerusalem to look for him. Now, when I read that last week, I was struck by what that tells us of the character of Jesus, even at 12 years of age. You see, Mary and Joseph were not disturbed by Jesus being absent from them for a whole day because they assumed he was with relatives and friends. Why would they assume that? Unless that was what he was like. Surely that points to a very confident young man and a very gregarious one, someone who just loves company. Mary and Joseph assumed Jesus would be up to what he was usually up to, chatting and hanging out with people. Do you know God loves just hanging out with people? 20 years later, Jesus still hadn't changed. He still loved chatting into the wee hours and hanging out with people, so much so that his religious enemies noticed that where there was a meal 
or a family gathering or a party, Jesus was sure to be right in the middle of it. And so they wrongly assumed he had to be either a glutton or a drunkard. Now, why did they think that? Because being religious, they couldn't see the real reason. He loved people. This is the sad thing about being religious. It's like a veil that blinds you to the love of God. Religious people just don't get it. How God just loves people and loves just being with people. They have the idea that God uses people to achieve his great purposes, although he has to probably hold his nose to do it. So they spend their whole lives measuring themselves and others by how much they have been used by God. If the God you worship is a God who primarily uses people to achieve his great purposes, then you will see little wrong in using people to achieve yours. The New Testament doesn't say that Jesus chose his disciples primarily so that he could use them. Mark 3.14 tells us that he appointed 12 that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach. What we do for him must come out of simply being with him. I believe that in this hour, the primary challenge before the church is to recognize that so much of what we have been doing for him has not come from being with him. That's worth saying again. I believe that in this hour, the primary challenge before the church is to recognize that so much of what we have been doing for him has not come from being with him. Instead, church has become what we are doing for him in order that one day we can be with him. The most significant factor in the growth of the early church was the authority, the confidence, what the book of Acts calls the boldness of those early disciples, who on being filled with the Holy Spirit were filled with the being with Christ life. And it was from that life and in that life of being with him that they set out. They didn't set out for him, they set out with him. Now, when we don't understand that, we can't help communicating the gospel as a message about what people need to do for him in order to be with him, rather than the revelation that God was in Christ dying to be with us. The idea that God so loves people, loud people, <clears throat> quiet people, rich people, poor people, successful people, broken and rejected people, people who are celebrating, people who are grieving. The idea that he so loved them all that he gave and continually gives himself freely and without reservation to them all, that idea remains deeply troubling and offensive to anyone who has their hope of being with God, resting on what they can do for him. Do you know God is so much at rest in who he is that he's really not looking to you or I to help him achieve something, to prove himself to establish his identity. As the father said in effect to the elder brother in Luke 15, you really have nothing to be angry about. It's just that you've been living as if all this wasn't already yours and as if I wasn't already yours. Let's come back to the 12 year old Jesus. You know, after searching for him for a whole day, Mary and Joseph finally found Jesus in the temple. Luke says that they found him sitting in the midst of the teachers both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. I thought this week about Mary and Joseph searching for Jesus. I guess they would have first perhaps gone back to where they'd been staying, back to their digs. Um, then perhaps from there, they would have gone to some relatives or friends who lived in Jerusalem. 
But I guess as the day wore on and there was no sign of him, they would have got increasingly anxious. Perhaps they went to the temple to pray for him. But I suspect that when they found him there, they must have been kicking themselves, thinking, of course, we should have known. It's all he ever talks about at home. After all, when they point out to Jesus how anxious he has made them, he replies in effect that they should have known by now where he would be, that he would be about what he called my father's business. By the age of 12, Jesus is already well established in his identity. That knowing his father and who he is in his father is manifesting in Jesus' life as confidence and rest. Mary and Joseph are anxious, but there's no trace of anxiety in Jesus. Their anxiety almost puzzles him. 20 years later, he showed that same surprise at the anxiety of his disciples when they wake him up in the boat during the storm. His rest offends them too. They say to him just what Mary and Joseph said that day in the temple. Don't you care about what we've been going through? Luke finishes his account of that conversation between Mary and Joseph and Jesus with this sentence. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And that is all the Bible says about the next 20 years of Jesus's life. Now think about that. The most interesting, world-changing, amazing life that has ever been lived by anyone ever and all the Bible says about it is that Jesus remained subject to his earthly parents and continued to increase in wisdom, statue, and favor with God and man. In other words, he grew. The Bible records Jesus doing the works of God for three years after growing for 30 years. He grew in the life of being with his father so much that during those last three years, he never described his life as a life alone. When people asked him how did he do the things he did, his reply was always to point out that everything he did and said came from being with the Father. His ministry and his life were not for God, they were from God. He was rooted and established in his being, his being with God. So established in his union with the Father that when Philip asked him to show us the Father, Jesus immediately and unashamedly replied, Don't you get it, Philip? To see me is to see the Father. Now, we're speaking this morning about the authority that was manifesting in Jesus' life and later in that of his apostles. And I'm saying that such authority came from a life of being with, not doing for. At being taken aback by the authority with which unschooled fishermen spoke about God, the book of Acts describes the scribes and teachers as taking note that these men had been with Jesus. Still today, God's authority can only manifest in the church to the degree that believers know of their being with Christ. The earthly-minded church has always sought for authority in the wrong places. For centuries, the church looked to grow in political power or wealth to gain authority. Today, many of us have been trained to grow churches in numbers as the way to gain authority. But what's the point of having larger and larger churches if we're still filling them full of deeply anxious believers who have grown so little in the revelation of their union with Christ, the life of being with God, the life of being the beloved in whom he is well pleased before you've done one thing for him, the life of Christ.
In growing so little in the revelation of our union with Christ, most of us as believers cannot speak with authority of God's grace. For in working so hard for him, like the elder brother, we have kept ourselves from being with him. The less time we spend with him, the more offended we are to discover him being with people whom we believe have not done enough to deserve his presence. Listen again to what Jesus had the Father in Luke 15 say to the deeply offended elder brother. Son, you are always with me. Now, why did he say it that way? I mean, why didn't the Father say, Son, I am always with you? Is there a difference between saying, You are always with me and I am always with you? Now, maybe there isn't, but I have wondered about that. If perhaps what the Father was saying to us through that verse is, in my heart, you are with me. In my mind, we are reconciled. I can say that you are with me, but I cannot say that I am with you, for you are not living as if I am with you. Do you know that in the Father's heart, he had reconciled the prodigal son to himself before the prodigal came home? That's why he ran and embraced him without waiting to see whether he was repenting well enough to be embraced. But although the father had already reconciled the prodigal to himself, the prodigal had to be reconciled to the father by accepting the father's forgiveness. Paul wrote this to the Corinthians concerning everyone in this world, including all those whom you and I might judge this morning as enemies of God. He wrote, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God was pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. It is not the job of anyone in this world to reconcile themselves to God by changing their life, but simply to be reconciled to God by accepting the reconciliation, the change of life that he has provided, Christ and him crucified. It is not the job of anyone in this world to reconcile themselves to God by changing their life, but simply to be reconciled to God by accepting the reconciliation, the change of life that he has provided, Christ and him crucified. But that acceptance is an act of faith a trust that comes from knowing the Father as who he really is, the God who was in Christ dying to be with us. The Holy Spirit is given to the church that he may pour into our hearts the love of God, that we may grow in the knowledge and grace of God, grow in this being with him life. Now, how much are we to grow in this life? Hold on to your hats, and I am sorry if this offends you, but I believe we are to grow so much in this being with God life that we begin to live out his heart in this world. We begin to leave our buildings and our meetings and spend much more time with the sort of people who wouldn't be caught dead in a church except to be buried. And when people see us loving them and accepting them and believing in their worth as immeasurable, even when they're living lives that reveal they have zero respect themselves for themselves or others, when people see us loving, just being with them, and ask us to show them the Father, we in that moment, with all authority, can speak as the body of Christ, and we too can say, don't you see? When you've seen us, you've seen the Father, for we are those who share his life and his love. Now, when we don't understand that, 
we can't help communicating the gospel as a message about what people need to do for him in order to be with him, rather than the revelation that God was in Christ dying to be with us. Many Christians have no idea that Jesus came into their lives because he wanted to be with them. They are convinced that he is only in their lives for what he can get. They think he is here to demand holiness, to demand obedience. Jesus came to supply holiness, to supply obedience. For our holiness and our obedience, apart from him, are totally inadequate to produce his life. You see, what Martha did not understand was that Jesus did not come to her house to demand a meal. He came as the bread of life to supply food that will not perish. But she was so focused on working for him, if you remember, that she neglected to be with him. The level of frustration, anger and self-condemnation in my life and yours this morning is only the measure of how long we've been working for him without being with him. Despite what you may hear in religious circles, Jesus did not come to you and I to demand righteousness. He came to supply it. Why would God ask you to produce something in your own strength when he has clearly said, apart from me, you can do nothing? Why would God ask you to produce something in your own strength when he has clearly said, apart from me, you can do nothing? The angel did not say to Mary, you will produce a child, but you will bear a child when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The Holy Spirit leads us into rest, for he leads us into the revelation, not that our hope is in what we will do for God, but that our hope is in what God has done for us. He has given us the gift, the life of being with him. Christ in us is our hope of glory and the source of our authority. For the Holy Spirit fills us for this reason, that we can speak not as those becoming with God, but as those being with God. The riches of his kingdom are not material things, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The life free from fear, because the darkness of anxiety cannot live in the light of his presence. This life of being with him is not a life free from affliction, but it is the life free from the fear of affliction. You see, my hope is not in avoiding trouble, but in being joined to the life that overcomes all trouble. My hope in this season is not that I will avoid catching COVID-19, but that if COVID affects me, it will find out what leprosy found out when it touched Jesus, that the life in me is an overcoming life, for the same spirit that rose Christ Jesus from the dead lives in me, and that life is imperishable. So even if I die, I cannot die. I mean, if the Father could say to the first Adam, in dying you will die, then he can say to me and you who are in the last Adam, Christ, in dying, you will not die. The authority, the confidence, the boldness, the liberty that Jesus displayed and all those who were full of his Holy Spirit display was a lack of fear that comes from being with God. Now for the church to demonstrate before this world the liberty and confidence and rest that men search for in this world and never find, then we must grow in this life of being with Jesus. And if we have to leave our kitchens, our churches for a while, in order to be better with him rather than to do for him, then it will have been worth it for the church to rediscover the true source of authority, being with him. What we do for him must come out of simply being with him.
And I believe in this hour, the primary challenge before the church is to recognize that so much of what we have been doing for him has not come from being with him. Now, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you in such power that those who hear you will recognize that your authority comes from being with Jesus. God bless you.